IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast. I'm your host and insurance business's managing editor, Paul Lucas, and I wonder how many of you have looked at your boss, your CEO, whomever is at the top of your company, or even just your direct manager or team leader, and thought, I couldn't make the decisions they make. Uh, Sometimes it seems like they just have this instinct for what works. Uh, Sometimes it looks like their knowledge can only come from decades of experience. Uh, Well, get ready to have that illusion shattered. Uh, My guest today will show you how to make the best decisions and avoid business disasters. He'll teach you the techniques that, whisper it quietly, might actually make you a better decision maker than your boss. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, he is the CEO of Disaster Avoidance Experts, Dr. Gleb Saborski. Gleb, welcome to YB Talk. Thank you so much, Paul. I appreciate it. And I'm glad that Brian Ahern introduced us. Yeah, so so Gleb, um, let's start by delving a little bit into your background, um, because you've been a professional speaker for well over two decades now, but you actually started out as a teaching fellow, is that right? That's right, yes. So I that's how I started my career as a teacher. I was going into academia, and uh, as you go into academia and start learning about the topics of decision-making, which we can talk about earlier. One of the things you do, you pay your way by being a teacher on these topics to undergraduates. So that's how I started off my career. And that's one of the things that made me passionate about training folks, that I was a teaching fellow. And I really enjoyed helping illuminate people around what good decision-making meant when they often didn't know what it actually meant. And of course, you you went on to become a a professor in the history of of behavioral science. So was it sort of delving into behavioral economics that sort of opened the door to your focus on decision making? Or or did you have sort of a a prior interest? I had some of prior interest in decision making because I always felt that, you know, people say go with your gut, trust your intuitions, follow your heart. And then I grew up in the dot-com boom. So I was born in 1981, and then I was 18 in 1999 when tech leaders and investors were partying like it's 1999, for those who remember that Prince song. Well, just a couple of years later, there was the dot-com bust when all the people who were praised, you know, Webvan, Boo.com, Pets.com, in 1999, they all went bust. And so the people went from heroes to zeros, from you know, to villains, essentially. And they were the same people. The newspapers were the Wall Street Journal, you know, The Guardian. They were praising the same people in 1999 and criticizing them in 2001. And it made me realize that the decision-making of these supposedly wonderful business leaders is kind of random and dependent a lot on luck and circumstances. And that helped spur my interest in behavioral science because the kind of decision-making tools that were out there where, as you said at the beginning of the program, people are encouraged to go with their gut and trust their experience just didn't seem to cut it very well for me. And that is what really encouraged my interest in behavioral science focusing on how do we behave, why do we behave that way, especially with decision-making. How do we make decisions and how do we manage risks, which is so important for the insurance industry and so often folks get it pretty wrong. 
Yeah, well, that's that's really interesting that you said, you know, when you were looking at the, the CEOs and so on and, and, and comparing 99 to 2001, you sort of came to the conclusion that it was sort of look-based. But I guess working within behavioral science, then are there perhaps, you know, some, some neurological reasons as to why people might make good decisions and, and bad decisions? Absolutely. We, according to the latest research in behavioral science, aren't really wired for the modern world. We aren't wired to make good decisions in the modern world. Our gut reactions aren't wired to make good decisions in the modern world. Our gut reactions are actually wired for the savanna environment. When we lived in small tribes of 15 people to 150 people, when we were hunters, foragers, and gatherers, our primary response to threats, for example, is the fight or flight response. And that was great in the savanna environment when we had to face saber-toothed tigers as our main threats. You know, it was the ones who jumped at a hundred shadows to get away from that one saber-toothed tiger were the ones who survived and thrived. You might have heard of it as the saber-toothed tiger response. In the modern world, when, let's say, your boss gives you constructive critical feedback, it's not a good idea to have the fight-or-flight response as your response. The folks who are more flight-oriented ignore their intuition is to ignore what the boss is saying and not really listen to them or if they're the boss themselves, not ignore what a client is saying in terms of constructive critical feedback, right? And the ones who are fight-oriented, their temptation is to argue back and say, no, what are you talking about? You're wrong, I'm smart, and uh, you know, you, you're dumb, uh, and that so on. This is not the right response in those situations. The right response is neither the flight response nor the fight response. The right response is to look at what your boss or your client is saying, Figure out, okay, what prompted them to give you this feedback? What is the cause, the root cause of the situation? Then look at the root cause, examine it, analyze it, understand it, and come back to the boss or the client and say, hey, now I understand why this happened. You know, smooth ruffled feathers, apologize, and then address the situation effectively and tell them how you will address it effectively. That is what you really need to do in the modern world, but it is completely counterintuitive. It does not go against, it does not go with our intuitions. And there are so many other examples that don't go with our intuitions. And those are called cognitive biases, these dangerous judgment errors that come from how our brain is wired, that cause us to make bad, bad mistakes in the modern world. So that's what cognitive biases are. They are the dangerous judgment errors that cause us to make serious errors in reaching our goals. I mean, making good decisions and managing risks. A lot of them come from our evolutionary background. Some others come from the specific structural wiring of our brains. And we can go much more in depth into that. But that is the key that you need to remember. We're not wired for the modern world. We're wired for the savannah environment. And that's why we make bad mistakes in our decisions. You've, you've found a perfect excuse for me now. Um, <laughs> let, <laughs> let me ask you, Gleb, as, uh, before we kind of delve into that in a, in a little bit uh, more depth, um, just tell us a, about the company that you're running now, which, as I mentioned at the top, is called Disaster Avoidance Experts. Um, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Happy to. So the company focuses on helping leaders, businesses avoid disasters through future-proofing, through looking at threats, forecasting and assessing threats, and maximizing opportunities. You know, people talk about threats and risks often, of course, it's something that is dealt with in the insurance industry very much. But you also don't want to miss those opportunities. It can be as bad to miss an opportunity as it is to miss a threat. So our company helps leaders, helps organizations of all sorts 
look at their current situation and see what are the kind of cognitive biases that are causing them to miss the reality of upcoming threats. For example, the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Huge, huge threat, major, major issue. But so many people missed it. So many people didn't pay attention. I was one of the ones who called it pretty early and I started writing about it, talking about how this is going to be really bad, this is going to be a problem in February and Mar- early March of last year. And so that is something that was not really being talked about yet at the time. People were dismissing it as an issue. And so eventually, because of my articles in Business Insider and so on, a publisher came to me and asked me to write a book about this, which I did called Resilience, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal of the COVID-19 Coronavirus Pandemic. And so my clients, the ones who are on the retainer with me, including some insurance companies, they were aware, much more aware than others of this issue because I was bringing it to their attention. I was writing white papers about it. I was guiding them in making the right decisions on COVID-19 and looking forward to the future, not thinking that it'll go away by the summer, it'll be only a couple of months, but that it'll be at least two years and potentially more of really major serious disruptions around the globe. And that's only one example out of many where focusing on addressing, figuring out threats and looking, of course, at opportunities helps companies make much better decisions. And that's what disaster avoidance experts does. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of people who w- wishing they uh, would have had your advice in March. <laughs> um, but, but you mentioned the Gleb about um, you know writing and so on and producing these white papers, and and you are a best-selling author as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Perhaps most well known for your uh, book "Never Go with Your Gut: How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters." Um, obviously, I want to talk to you about the subject matter, but before that, just Tell us a little bit about the process, because how difficult is it to write a more than 200-page book? Um, Is it an exhaustive process? It really is an exhausting process because it's not simply like writing a blog or just writing, you know, whatever it is. I'm trying to remember. It ended up being definitely, yeah, so so 50,000 words, don't remember. But it's not that. It's putting it together. It's putting the ideas together. And it's something that I really wanted to be the epitome of over 20 years of work, my business experience, consulting, coaching, training folks, as well as combining the research. And it's hard to choose what to focus on and how much to cut because there's so many great case studies I had and so much great research that I could put in. But I had to, of course, make serious choices and serious cuts into things that would be the most pragmatic and useful for an audience of business professionals, including a lot of insurance professionals who would be using this, who for whom it would be practically useful. So that is what I really focused on. And that was a really effortful process. I was very glad to have the Career Press as a great publisher. So they had great editors working with me and they put in a lot of effort to make sure to hone this. They, as Career Press, they're a famous business publisher. So they know very well what business folks want, professionals want and need, and they made sure to hone it in a good shape for that audience, this audience. And it was hard to put it together. It was definitely challenging to, I think the most challenging parts were to cut so much content that is really great content, very helpful content that 
just didn't end up making into the book because the only the best of the best, you know, the top 0.1% of the content that I had to offer ended up being in the book. Well, I want to obviously delve into the book with you now, but um, um, just explain to us what was your inspiration here? Because I'm sure there's probably some people listening who who might be in that camp of thinking, well, why should I listen to this guy? I'm doing just fine. Um, Why do you think that they should pay attention to your ideas? Well, if they were fine, I, I hope that they called COVID as early as I did. You know, there's probably not that many people who did so from based on my observations. And it was definitely devastating for many folks who could have made much better decisions if they were able to catch it earlier. And there were a number of other things that I caught early that folks weren't paying attention to. For example, these new strains the in the U.S., Of course, the UK had them quite a bit earlier, but here in the US where I'm based, people are still, and this is the end of January when we're recording this, we're still not really paying attention to these new strains. I wrote a white paper already in the end of December saying that this is going to be bad. This is going to be really serious, lead to a major surge in the US sometime in March or April, but they were still not paying nearly sufficient attention to this issue. So that's kind of one of the things, the real world pragmatic predictions that I make that turn out sometimes, unfortunately, to be too true, even if they're pretty painful. That's one. But even more importantly, you know, it can feel right that you're doing certain things. It can feel good that you're doing certain things. But that's what your gut feels. Our gut feels comfortable. Our gut feels intuitive. So whatever feels intuitive and right to you, you will do, right? That's what it feels like. It feels right. It feels true. Therefore, you do it. That, unfortunately, is a very, very bad mindset because our gut intuitions, let me repeat that again, are not wired for the modern world. They're wired for the savanna environment. Whatever feels true and right to you is not necessarily true and right at all because of these cognitive biases, because of these dangerous judgment errors that we tend to make all the time. One of the biggest, for example, with figuring out what is true is called the confirmation bias, where we tend to look for information that confirms our beliefs and ignore information that doesn't. You know, so for example, if you search on Google with a phrase search saying something like, why is Brexit good for business? What kind of answers will you get to that question <laughs> versus when you search, why is Brexit bad for business? What kind of exit answers will you get to that question? That's the motivated search that we tend to do. We tend to look for information that confirms our beliefs. So if insurers, let's say, are looking for information to try to confirm their beliefs that global climate change won't really have an impact on certain insurers still believe that global climate change won't really have that much of an impact on their insurance policies and they shouldn't be integrating that into the underwriting risks, which they really should be. (laughs) And they will look for that information on on Google and, and so on, company professional websites, which they'll get a lot of information from polluting companies that want to discredit the idea that climate change will impact, will make have a significant impact, right? So it's an example of where we tend to look for information in a motivated way and reject information that doesn't fit our intuitions. And so that's only one of many examples. Our world is changing. Our world is becoming very different than it used to be, and it's changing at a rapid rate. What used to work for you will likely not work in the future, unfortunately. And you can't trust your gut. You can't trust your intuitions on making the right decisions as the world changes and goes along. 
Well, I mean, that is, of course, um, you know, the, the title of your book kind of gives away um, that you don't think that the, the good is the way to go. But I mean, are there any examples where you should just trust your instinct over perhaps your head? There are some situations that are similar to the environment that we had in the savannah, where your instincts, your intuitions do deserve to be trusted. So there, I'll give one. So for example, when you know someone really well, that's kind of like someone who is in your tribe. So the tribal environment in the savannah is something that you needed to know people in your tribe, you really were dependent on them, and you're, of course, in competition with them for resources. So if you know somebody pretty well and you know what they're like, if your instincts, if your intuitions tell you that they're behaving off in some way, that they're in some strange way that they're behaving off, you know, you might want to check the information that they're providing you. You might want to trust them less in a proposed business collaboration or something like that in this situation. So that's an example where your intuitions deserve some trust. Another example, of course, is life or death situations. So again, very similar to the Savannah environment, that fight or flight response. You know, When you have a you know, soccer ball hit at your head and it's, you know, you don't want to start thinking about it. Well, will it miss my head by, you know, 10 centimeters or or will it hit me? That's not the time to think about it. You want to duck. That's the time to duck. You want to listen to your instincts at that time. So that is where you want to listen to your instincts and those fight or flight responses or in the situations that are similar to the, again, similar to the Savannah environment or the tribal environment that, where you know people for some for a long time and you can trust your knowledge of them. So that's what I would say are situations where you can trust your gut. But overall, it's never a good idea to just go with your gut. You really want to check with your head unless it's something where you really don't have time to make a decision and check where you don't have time to do that, like a life or death situation. Yeah, and I, I don't want to give away, obviously, everything that's in the book, of course, but um, very early on, you outline um, an eight-step decision-making model. Um, can you just give us a, a brief overview of that? Very happy to. So for making major decisions, this is a situation where you really need to hunker down, really not trust your gut. You know, it's so silly. When you look at the research on decision-making, leaders and just in general, professionals, on the most important decisions, they tend to go with their gut more, not less. They tend to gather less data and trust data less. They tend to go with their gut more. And this is so irrational and unreasonable and damaging for their business and their careers. The eight-step decision-making model is a simple, clear process that you go through. It takes maybe about an hour or more, of course, if you're making a team decision, but for yourself, generally, it can take an hour, as short as an hour where you'd go through key steps that help you make the best decisions and major decisions. So first of eight steps, you want to identify the need for a decision to be made. You might think, well, why is this a step even in the first place? Well, because there are many people who don't identify the need for a decision to be made in a timely manner. How many insurance companies did not identify the need for, let's say, addressing global climate change as an issue? How many 
folks in general didn't identify the need to address the COVID pandemic. That's Those are examples of where you need to identify quickly the need for a decision to be made. And to do that requires resisting our cognitive biases, which tell us that the world will be going normally. That's called the normalcy bias. The normalcy bias causes us to feel that the future will be much like the past. And we make bad mistakes when we think that. And we don't identify the need for a decision to be made in a nearly timely enough manner. Then you want to gather relevant information from a variety of perspectives. That's step two. You want to especially pay attention to people who disagree with you, who hold perspectives different than you and weigh their opinion more. It doesn't mean that they're right, but you want to get away from that confirmation bias and other cognitive biases, which cause you to really privilege yourself, your own opinion and your perspective, and that causes you to make worse decisions. Then Third step, deciding the goals, painting a clear vision of desired outcomes. Now, often we just make a decision without thinking about what is the ideal long-term future we want to come from this decision. If you have a very clear vision of the future that you want to reach, you can work backward from that future and use that to inform your decision. Next, develop clear decision-making criteria to evaluate options. That's step four. You want to think about options before you get to the choices that you'll make. So what are the criteria? Before you think about the options that, you know, the options of decision. So for example, if you're trying to hire someone, think about criteria like salary. Think about criteria like fit into the company. Think about criteria like diversity or experience in the field and how important each of these criteria are. Weigh them on a scale of one to 10. You know, How important is salary to you? Is it, let's say, a seven out of 10? How important is their fit into the company? You know, maybe that's a nine out of 10. Depends on your situation. And only then you want to consider options. You want to generate at least five options in order to make the best decisions. That's what the research shows us. At least five viable options. Don't settle for the first couple of options and choose among them. At least five viable options. And then you rank them on each of the criteria. How good is each option, let's say, on salary? And how good is each option on fit into the company? That's the sixth step, weighing the options and picking the best of the bunch. Seven, implementing the option that you chose. To implement the option that you chose, that's we're getting to the implementation stage. There are two steps here. First, imagine that your decision, your hire, your the, the insurance policy, the new initiative that you launched completely failed. Absolutely failed, no question about it. Then think about all the reasons why it might have failed. And after thinking about that, all the reasons, how can you address all the serious potential failure modes? Then the other thing that you want to do is imagine that it succeeded, absolutely wonderfully succeeded. What are all the reasons for why it succeeded and what can you do to make sure to implement them? And finally, evaluate the implementation process and revise it as needed. So you're implementing this the hire, the new insurance policy, the new project initiative, whatever you're doing. Then how is it going? Think about the metrics that you want to measure how successful the project is, and that should be informed by the previous step, number seven, and this is the eighth step, the last one. What are the metrics for success? And give and check in on those regularly and revise it as needed in order to make sure that you not simply make the best decision, but you implement it. Because if you make a good decision, but you implement it poorly, it's still going to be a poor outcome. Yeah, I imagine there's probably people taking notes as you're going through that. Um, tell us, though, 
because obviously that's you know very very useful advice i think for people at large but if we can just sort of focus in a little bit more specifically on the, on the insurance sector um let's say you know a, a broker or an agent somebody who's involved in sales as an example um how can they apply some of the logic that you're sort of outlining here and in your book in general into their daily business activities of course, all of their decision-making should be informed by these major decisions should be informed by the eight-step decision-making model. The And of course, the cognitive biases make a big, big difference. So for example, with insurance companies, with sales, well, there's very often the situation where at the end of the quarter, sales agents need to make, need to fulfill their quotas, right? And then sales agents when I talk to sales managers, it's inevitable that sales agents are way too optimistic about whether they will fulfill their quotas or not. You know, they think that they will close eight out of 10 potential leads and they end up closing four out of 10 potential leads. Things like this. That's called the planning fallacy, where we tend to make plans and we think everything will go according to plan. That feels like it, that feels right. But we tend to be too optimistic about our plans. We don't think about all the problems, all the dangers, all the threats that might hit us. And we don't pivot our plans in a nearly timely enough manner to address these problems. So the planning fallacy causes a lot of problems for insurance. That's a lot of, lot of issues. Then, of course, underwriting risk. I can't tell you how much underwriting risk is excessive because of optimism bias. Optimism bias is our tendency to be too positive and too optimistic about the, what the future will be like, as well as another cognitive bias called overconfidence bias. Overconfidence bias is, just like it sounds, we tend to be very confident about the world. When we believe something will be 100% right, then it will actually be, you know, when we'll bet the house on it, you know, we'll make the wonderful underwriter policy on it will only be right 80% of the time on average. And that is bad. We'll be wrong one-fifth of the time. We'll lose the house one-fifth of the time. So that those are serious issues that need to be addressed. Now, when you look at cognitive bias risks, you want to think about them as part of the insurance industry nine branded categories of risk. And of course, there are nine branded categories of insurance risk. Credit risk, market risk, pricing and underwriting risk, reserving risk, operational risk, liquidity risk, strategic risk, risk, legal risk, and reputational risk. Cognitive bias risks are intersect with all of those risks, and they exacerbate all of them. So if you want to mitigate any and all of those risks, you want to be aware of how cognitive biases apply to that. And that's why I work with the Risk and Insurance Management Society and other associations in order to integrate cognitive bias risk as an important concept for the insurance industry to make sure that insurance professionals actually make the right risk decisions. And is there perhaps, I don't know, a, a sort of a key tip or you know perhaps a certain exercise that we can apply to to train our brains into this way of thinking you know if you were to sort of give um, the insurance professionals who are listening to this sort of one key takeaway um, what would that be a key takeaway would be that you don't want to trust your gut your gut will tell you something and it will feel like it's true that is the feeling of the, your intuitions at play, your intuitions are often going to be wrong. They're often not going to be correct because our world is changing. And we 
don't realize how much it's changing. We don't realize all the things that are different in our world. I mean, COVID-19 has really powerfully impacted our world. Global climate change is impacting our world. There are so many dynamics that are shifting and changing our world in powerful ways. And it doesn't feel like that to our gut. That's not what our gut tells us. So we cannot simply trust our gut. We need to be aware of cognitive bias risks as a key category of risk for insurance professionals who want to be thinking about both from the underwriting perspective, but also from sales perspective. Who are you selling it to? What kind of reputational risks might be coming from that? What kind of strategic risks, legal risks might be associated with it? There are so many things that our gut reactions simply misfire around and you don't want to trust your gut around it. You want to use your head. You want to evaluate cognitive bias risks as part of your every decision so that you really don't, don't regret the kind of decisions you make. Yeah, no, I think it's fantastic advice. Uh, unfortunately, we, we are running short of time, Gleb. Otherwise, I, I think I'd ask you many, many more questions. But I, I just want to touch on something else here because you have a, a side interest, shall we say. Um, I, I normally avoid getting uh, political on our podcast for obvious reasons. There are some uh, deeply contrasting and passionate views out there. And often there's some merit on both sides, of course. But you, you have a political interest that I think we can all agree on in that no matter where we put our votes, because you want politicians and everyone to commit to truth-oriented behaviors. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Happy to. So this is something I'm really passionate about, as you can hear about truthfulness, accuracy, factuality. And I am the co-founder of a project called the Pro-Truth Pledge at protruthpledge.org. That's a simple commitment to 12 behaviors that research in behavioral science has shown to be correlate with truthfulness. So if you follow those behaviors, you're definitely going to be more truthful than if you don't follow those behaviors. And our goal is to get everyone, and especially politicians, to take the pro-truth pledge and make that commitment to truthfulness. And we have politicians on the right and the left taking the pro-truth pledge and making that commitment to truthfulness. I think over a thousand politicians by now and over 10,000 private citizens. So the more private citizens take the pledge, including insurance professionals, the more politicians will be incentivized to take the pledge because they know that folks are paying attention to them. Right now, politicians don't have any public incentive to be truthful. They don't necessarily get a boost to their reputation for being known to be truthful. The pro-truth pledge changes that. It changes their incentives. It changes through addressing reputational risk and reputational rewards and gives them the reputational rewards that they deserve for making a public commitment to truthfulness. And the more folks everywhere out there go to protruthpledge.org and take the pledge, the more politicians will be incentivized to be more truthful. Yeah, well, Gleb, I'm telling you the truth when I say that you've been a fantastic guest. Um, if somebody wants to, to reach out to you on the back of this podcast, how can they get in touch? Well, my book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, is available in bookstores everywhere, but it might not be the safest place for you to go right now. So you can just go online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, it's available in digital form and paper form and an audiobook form for those folks who like audiobooks. For my own resources, just check out disasteravoidanceexperts.com and there'll be a way to contact me, chat about all of these topics, happy to answer questions. Then, of course, my blogs, my videos, my podcasts, white papers that I mentioned before, classes and so on with RIMS that I collaborate in classes. And you want to especially check out disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe for a free eight video-based 
course on making the wisest decisions. And that includes, as the first module of the course, an assessment on these cognitive biases, the dangerous judgment errors in the workplace, 30 most dangerous cognitive biases. So again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. I'm sure you perked some ears there when you said the word free, Gleb. Um, <laughs> thank you very, very much for your time. Um, to everybody listening, um, this has been IB Talk. And everyone, I give you my word, we'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.